Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio, I'm Dan Skinner. Today, we continue to build on conversations we've had on previous episodes about housing, city design, segregation, and how we can make better progress addressing the massive racial and class-based health and other disparities here in Ohio. Our guest today is one of my favorite voices in our community, Glennon Sweeney, who's a senior research associate at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State. Listeners may recall that we've talked with several other folks from Kerwin in the past, including great conversations with Kyle Strickland and Jason Reese, and we'll be linking to those episodes in the show notes. Glennon's work centers on the formation of metropolitan space, its evolution, and the role of suburban municipalities in creating metropolitan-wide equity. An applied social scientist engaging in interdisciplinary transformative scholarship, all of Glennon's research is designed to generate real-world impacts, the co-production of knowledge, and dissemination in both community and scholarly contexts. I also want to add that Glennon is actively involved in shaping policy on the local level in Central Ohio communities as a member of the Worthington Community Relations Commission and the Franklin County Local Food Council. Before turning to my conversation with Glennon, I'll note, as Glennon herself does in the interview, that we don't talk about health directly in much of the interview. What you will learn from Glennon, who I think understands this stuff and can explain it better than anybody in Ohio, is that the decisions we've made in resource allocation, housing policy, and urban-suburban interactions and beyond in many ways sets the stage for what ultimately shapes the health of our communities. Okay, now to my conversation with Glennon Sweeney. So I want to I want to start, you know, as I often do, especially with, um, you know, academics and you, you're, when you're, you're far into your work, I want to do the 50,000 foot view thing and, and ask you to kind of help listeners orient themselves to your work a bit. I mean, you know, your profile talks about things like the motivations behind suburban development, desegregation efforts and, and the role of economic development uh, in addressing inequality. So that's a lot of things. And it's it does seem to me that today we're making progress in terms of people understanding why that kind of work is connected to health. But how do you see it? Um, you know, I think that when we, you know, my work is largely about development in metropolitan space, like race and development in metropolitan space. And so I'm very interested in inequality. And I'm interested in suburbs because, you know, White flight in general is is probably the largest driver of segregation, um, and white flight is facilitated by policies. Um, and so, segreg- a segregated landscape, a segregated metropolitan area, results in disparities that you know go well beyond income and wealth and and you know access to housing. And those things are they include health disparities. Our infant mortality. Um, hotspot map is the same map pretty much as the redlining map, as our opportunity maps, as, you know, pretty much anything you want to map, poverty. All of these things create that same upside down T-shape that follows south of I-70 and east of I-71 in central Ohio. Um, And it's, there's, you know, it's no coincidence that all of these things are correlated. So air quality is directly correlated with planning. I'm an urban planner, right? A city and regional planner. And so how we use our land dictates our health. 
Um, it dictates a lot of things, right? Um, and, and those things are related, right? Our, our place is related to our life expectancy. We can literally predict how long someone's going to live based on where they're born and where, you know, and, and so that to me means that how we build our neighborhoods and how we develop our landscapes is critically important to the health of, of us as people. Yeah. You know, I've said on the show before, I was sitting on my front porch once and I live in Grandview, as you know, and I was talking to my, my kid, I can't remember if maybe he was five years old and, you know, we were talking about maps or something. And, and I showed him that, you know, about 20 minutes south of me by bike, by the way, 20, not, not a car, 20 minutes in Franklinton, the life expectancy drops. Some, it was something like 15 or 20 years at the, I mean, it's, it's staggering. Um, I do want to ask you, and this is totally out of ignorance, but it seems like there's this assumption that suburbs are kind of these like affluent places. So like just don't even worry about them or kind of writing them off. But is, is this an area that a lot of people are working on to sort of understand how suburbs are part of this puzzle? Yeah, there's a pretty large uh, body of scholarship. I mean, we have Bernadette Hanlon at Ohio State as a well-known scholar who studies suburbs um, in the planning department. Um, so there, there are quite a few people around the world who study suburbs and suburbs in the United States aren't necessarily the same as suburbs in other parts of the world either. Um, and Bernadette's work has, you know, looked nationally and internationally. My work tends to focus much more on American suburbs. I'm interested in American metropolitan areas and suburbs are a huge part of metropolitan space. And, you know, I come from the Kerwin Institute and we made our name with opportunity mapping and suburbs also tend to hoard opportunity. And, you know, and, and if you're studying inequality, I'm really interested in why our suburbs hoarding opportunity. But when you look more deeply, you realize that only some suburbs are hoarding opportunity because suburbs are actually pretty diverse. Mm -hmm. um, Central Ohio is a little bit unique, actually, in how our suburbs have developed um, for at least a Midwestern, Northeastern city. We don't have, you know, typically you'll see more suburbs that have declined in a region. And we don't really have very many suburbs that I would considered to have declined. Whitehall is probably the best example locally. We also don't have that many inner suburbs, though, if you want to think about inner suburbs as close to the central city and, you know, maybe within I-270. We've got five of those. And Columbus, with the annexation policies, kind of ate all of the early suburbs. Um, so central Ohio is actually a really interesting place to study suburbs and the role of suburbs as well. You talk about hoarding resources. Can you give me some concrete examples of this in our area, sort of where we see this idea of uh, this imbalance that gets formed because of how resources get allocated? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I can use Upper Arlington. It's a it's the suburb that gets chosen a lot for these examples. It's also a suburb I happen to know a little bit more about because I, I wrote my thesis on Upper Arlington. So I have done research on the community in the past. Upper Arlington was a planned um, planned suburb. And by planned suburb, I mean that it was it was different than suburbs that came before it because the land was purchased and developed by one company. Um, and it was developed over a slower period of time, at least the original Upper Arlington um, community, with the intent of originally incorporating so that they can control land use. That was an intention from the beginning. And 
um, it was developed slowly to ensure that the right types of people were a, were the ones buying the land and living in Upper Arlington. As all of those planned suburbs were developed, it was very much like suburbs that were being developed all over the country at this time. Um, and Arlington is a place where you see, you know, it's it's you see disparities in that you have a very large white population and a relatively small non-white population with the exception of Asians. But it's a majority overwhelmingly white community. It's about 90% white. It's very similar to Worthington in terms of its demographics, actually. And Arlington has maintained that because of the original policies and practices that were used in its development. It has a very good school district. It has very well-funded schools. You see, you know, incredible wealth and then, you know, Arlington is also very close to Franklinton. It's not that far. It's very, you know, it's close to Grandview as well, right? Mm -hmm. And Franklinton is a community that's very different. Part of that is geography. Franklinton was originally built on a floodplain, which kind of disadvantaged it historically until we had a flood wall. You know, but you can also look at the Near East Side as another example compared to Upper Arlington, which was a community that by the 1920s was our Bronzeville as the, you know, because our, our African-American population in central Ohio really got much larger in the 1920s due to the Great Migration. We were an incredibly white city prior to that. Um, and as the population grew, it, there were hubs that grew, you know, Flytown was a place on, on, on the west side, but on the east side, you had um, Bronzeville or the King Lincoln District. Um, and that community um, had a lot of wealth as well. And there were people in that community that could have, you know, that were, that had wealth. There were, you know, Jews and blacks, essentially, with wealth on par with those in Upper Arlington. Um, and policy essentially took that wealth through disinvestment, um, highway construction, redlining. And then those with wealth, you know, say I own, you know, or say there's a, an African-American family and a Jewish family, both own successful businesses. And the community is redlined. The Jewish family is able to break into Bexley and at least take some, you know, but they are not able to sell their home, most likely. They're renting those properties. They become landlords in that neighborhood if you get out because it's very difficult to sell properties in a redlined community, right? But African Americans were really restricted because of the use of the prolific use of racial restrictions in Franklin County. And to, as to where they could go. And, and so that became a really big challenge. Um, and, it, and, it, and it made it impossible for them in many ways to build more wealth because how we build wealth in the United States is through property ownership. And if you can't buy property, you can't, or at least that's the number one way. There are other ways to build wealth, right? But that's the number one way. And so you have a community like Arlington that was able to incorporate Right, which there's a power in that alone. The power of incorporation gives suburbs the ability to to take those restrictive covenants and codify them into zoning code, right? And then say, well, I'm going to keep these excessive setbacks that were in these racial restrictions and or were in these restrictive covenants in these home deeds, and make them citywide. And you can, through exclusionary zoning, build a community that is for the elites. Right. So I, I was asking, kind of how how this uh, differential allocation of resources happens and that that ultimately creates health disparities, right? Mm -hmm.
It seems to me, you know, that you simultaneously take on in your in your work almost intractably complex questions on the one hand, right? But you also, I mean, you show up to forums and you're engaged in the community and you 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 go out of your way in your work to say that you're doing applied work. You want you want your work to inform policy. How do you balance these two things? So for example, when you talk when you talk about history with policymakers, redlining, the other forces of segregation in our communities, you know, there there is still this group that says, well, that was so long ago and yada yada. And you're there to kind of remind them about why these things are directly connected to the present. How do you do this work, this translational work between the undoing of these kinds of forces or the the addressing of these kinds of forces and then just kind of getting some wins in the present. I mean, that that's a little bit tough. You know, I mean, so for example, I'm on the Community Relations Commission in Worthington. And in, I don't know, 2018, I think it was, we got a non-discrimination ordinance passed. We worked with the city to get that through. And then in 2020, 2021, I think, I think it was 2020, we got source of income discrimination added to that. Um, which is a, a win in terms of housing. Um, both of those are huge wins. Um, we, you know, through our pressure, the CRC's pressure, we got the city to sign on to the regional inclusive housing initiative that's going on right now. Um, and so I guess many of the wins I'm actually seeing, you know, through my volunteer work with the city of Worthington, where I am seeing some progress on some issues related to, to these. Um, you know, in terms of policy, I would say that policy moves slowly. You know, I was invited to give testimony at a hearing about Columbus's, you know, big comprehensive rezoning initiative. And I was very encouraged by all of the statements made by, you know, city council members after my 10-minute whirlwind, here is why these things matter to history presentation. But I also know that talk is cheap. It's really easy to say things that sound really cool. And it's really hard often for politicians to actually create policy that addresses structure. You know, and so I think that, you know, one of my goals is to be out there helping to make sure people understand these issues and understand why history matters, why place matters, um, and, and why the history of place is so important. Because I, I do think that most people don't fully understand the history of their own community, let alone, you know, Columbus itself, which is a big city or, you know, the region. Um, and I think that understanding how we got here could change some people's minds. So I guess I'm an eternal optimist in the sense that I am hopeful that I can change minds. And I speak suburban. I'm from suburbs. I grew up in Worthington. So like, I, I really feel like it is my job to sit in rooms with white suburban people and tell them why their community may be racist. Do you find that with the kind of urban and suburban work you do, that just telling the history of the development of these places is transformative in, in and of itself? What other kinds of translational work do you need to do to connect walking down your you know, nice street with the uh, claims that, you know, progressives with their uh, everybody's welcome here signs or their Black Lives Matter signs. Like, how do you get them to realize, oh, wait, these things are actually related. Like, I'm implicated in that broader conversation. 
So I think part of it is drawing that direct line and showing. And so one thing that, that researchers, we know, because, you know, this is something that, you know, was written and we can see it, but we haven't gone through and really demonstrated this, you know, using maybe an entire city. We've, but, you know, these restrictive covenants were codified into zoning codes. And so one of the things I'm looking at right now is to what extent in central Ohio, and there's a portion of Columbus's zoning code that literally like in, you know, the setbacks and all of that section of it, it literally says it lists things. And then it says, unless the restrictive covenants, the restrictive deeds say different essentially. And so it's referring to these original, um, restrictive covenants. And I don't think that most people are aware to what extent the world we live in today is a product of these blatantly racist policies that, you know, most of us would, would, will, will disavow and, and openly say we think we're wrong and, you know, we wish the country had never used and things like that. But I don't think that People are, it's easy for people to connect that to their life. And I think it's hard for people to imagine giving something up because I think that many people feel threatened by, by conversations around equity and by more so for, by conversations around privilege, I think at least for white people from wealthier suburbs, right? Because if, I have this privilege and I got it through these maybe nefarious or unjust means. Does that mean I have to give it up to make it right? I think is what people are thinking. What's the answer to that? I mean, what do you say to people when they ask that, that particular question? Equity and pie, man. It's not like there's only so much like, um, and I would also say that, you know, the way that we live is a choice. The inequity we live with is a choice we make as a society. We choose to allow poverty to exist. We could choose not to have poverty. We could choose to have, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it? A, not a living wage, a universal income if we wanted to. And it would cost less. We've done studies than what we're paying in terms of welfare, crime, and all of the things associated with poverty. But we choose not to. We choose to have a society where some people have a lot and most people don't have enough. What kind of things do you look at when you... I'm trying to get you to put your your um, learned hat on here to help us. Like When you walk through a certain neighborhood, what kinds of things are you looking for to understand that community that maybe somebody who's not trained in this kind of work might not notice? What I do when I'm traveling sometimes is I will pull up the website for mapping inequality because they have the redlining maps, all of the redlining maps across the country digitized. And if I don't know a city, I will see, especially if I'm riding on a train, I will get on the map and have it use my location data and see what the na- what the history of the neighborhood is essentially through that app and then look at it to see has this neighborhood been gentrified since then. Because if it was redlined, it did experience decline. If it was yellow, it most likely did. And it probably, you know, I can pr- probably guess, you know, or have some idea of the past demographics of the neighborhood. I can compare them to the current. I also tend to look at 
I like buildings. I like to look at what type of housing stock, what type of, you know, what era a housing stock is from. You know, there's, you know, anything built before World War II tends to be um, of much better quality. It's more likely to be gentrified if it hasn't already. Things built in the post-war era um, are usually the first, especially in the immediate post-war era, tend, especially for housing, tend to be the first to decline or what some would call filter. So I, I pay attention to the housing stock. I try to, you know, I pay attention to whether transportation is accessible. And I look at trees. Mm. I look at how many trees there are in an area, whether the streets have trees along them or if they're in yards and how many there are and if there's any kind of uh, tree canopy because that also gives you a, it's a very quick indication as to um, whether you're in an affluent area often. Because there are conscious strategies to increase the tree canopy in affluent neighborhoods and and what happens in non-affluent neighborhoods to the tree canopy? Is it just never planted? Is it destroyed as part of development? I don't think it's planted to the same extent. Um, And I think, yes, sometimes it is destroyed by development. I would also, um, you know, say that zoning has a big, you know, role to play in this. You have municipalities that are overwhelmingly residential, Right. Arlington is a very good example. Upper Arlington is a very good example of an overwhelmingly residential community. Worthington is also a very good example. Right. Um, And then you have neighborhoods in, you know, Columbus that are not that they're very close to industry or, you know, big commercial parks where you have a lot more contract concrete, a lot fewer trees. You know, where do you see investment in public parks? So it's not all about trees along the street and in yards. It's also about what else is around it and how is an area zoned? Where are the parks? Um, where is the investment in, you know, um, even community centers or other public buildings that might have trees around those and have, um, and, and those types of things, I think those matter quite a bit as well. And, you know, garbage dumps. Yep. Where are those things located? I guess my final question for you is kind of explicitly about some of the health issues that come up in, in my world of health policy. And I know are really important in yours as well. And there's kind of a connecting or translational work that's happening here with urban design and suburban, uh, the kind of critique you're putting forward. You know, we think about things like aging in place, right? Or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on our last episode, we talked about this phenomenon of, well, actually, you know, who would have thought stable housing actually helps have healthier kids? Um, over the years you've been studying and doing this kind of work and, and advocating and being involved in the community, does it feel different now? I mean, did 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter, I mean, did it amount to anything concrete? that you're seeing that's that's sticking? Do policymakers get it more? I guess I'm not trying to fish for like hope, but I'm wondering if you find that the lens is like obviously changed for some people where you don't need to start from square one anymore. Absolutely. Most people know what redlining is now, or at least they've heard of it. You know, five years ago when I would ask, has anyone ever heard of redlining? I might get two or three people in a room who raise their hand and know what I'm talking about. Most people know what structural racism is. They might not know the details, but they understand the concept, or at least people who are coming to my talks. And granted, that might be a select audience of people, although sometimes they are required if I'm talking to a class and, you know, so, and then they kind of have to sit through it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but um, 
and the other thing I would say is that there's also been a noticeable shift in suburbs in about the last five years, I would say. And so this did start before George Floyd, but it accelerated tremendously. There's been a proliferation of racial justice groups in suburbs. There's an intense interest in the issue of housing in a number of suburbs right now and in issues of, of racial justice in general. Um, but, you know, my 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 interest is housing, so I'm going to focus on, on those folks more so. Um, and that's that's incredibly encouraging and hopeful to me. Um, you know, the, the protesting that went on in, in the suburbs did eventually wear down. Um, I think that, you know, some people did, you know, the fad was over for them mm-hmm. in some of these suburbs. But I, I would say that, you know, I, I've been working with a group in Arlington for a while now on housing issues. I'm working with people in Worthington on housing issues. I'm talking with people in a lot of other suburbs about these issues and about how to pass SOI. How can we think about affordability? What's possible in our community? Right now, they're all conversations, but building affordable housing takes time anywhere, and it's particularly complicated in you know, places where it's been traditionally harder to do anyways, like suburbs. Um, so I am very encouraged with, uh, with the amount of local organizing that's been going on in suburbs. Um, and, I, I'm, and with the number of these people who are then running for office also and and getting elected and and this includes school board and city council which is you know very encouraging particularly you know a lot of these districts were able to fight off you know these anti crt you know far right um candidates and you know that's been to see that in in some districts where i was actually a little bit worried has been very encouraging as well I do think it's important, you know, to remember when you've or to notice when you've actually done something as opposed to when you've kept a bad thing from happening, you know, and keeping bad things from happening is important, but it's not to be confused with, you know, making progress in in your city code. But it can also allow more good things to happen, right? In Worthington, we were able to keep a who I think would have been an incredibly dangerous candidate off of the school board. And that, you know, our school board has really been doing cool things um, since then and been, you know, and dealing with some people who've been very, a very tiny, vocal, like, abhorrent group um but quite well um since then and so that's that's been very encouraging but you know there are other things that are you know the city of worthington is getting sued right now um over a development um issue that you know probably could have been prevented and that's you know incredibly frustrating to watch you know and so there are you know pros and cons out there right now for sure well, yeah, I'm sure this is going to be the first of many conversations, or at least I hope it will be. Um, but uh, thanks for the work you do, and thanks for taking some time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Trish Mayhorn. 
The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and to check out an archive of our past episodes, including episodes that are nice counterparts to today's conversation, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon with our final episode of the season, which will feature a conversation with Dr. Miriam Hussein, an OSU oncologist in training, climate activist, and the current president of the Islamic Medical Association of North America. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and be well.